On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. She is the forest ecologist who has proven beyond doubt that trees communicate with each other, that a forest is a single organism wired, Suzanne Samard says, for wisdom and for what it is hard to call anything other than care. She has shifted her field of science on its axis and was an inspiration for the central character in Richard Power's celebrated novel, The Overstory. But it's the understory of a forest that Suzanne Samard brought into the light. Modern forestry had applied a logic of human societies and what our eyes could see, assumed that trees compete with each other for light and soil, and thus tore out mature trees to plant marketable young species alone and set apart. Suzanne Samard began her rigorous, groundbreaking research with three types of coexistent species, paper birch, Douglas fir, and western red cedar. What she helped the world see next is resonant intelligence about more than trees. The processes that make for a high-functioning forest mirror the maps of the human brain that we're also just now drawing. All of this turns out to be validating, catching up with intelligence long held in Aboriginal science. Suzanne Samard calls the mature hub trees in a forest mother trees, parenting, eldering in a mode of mutuality and reciprocity, modeling what we also know to be true of genuinely flourishing human ecosystems. The most powerful parts of our social systems can be, you know, the, the elder that has aged and is guiding younger people or guiding their culture. And, and yet they can be almost invisible in the hierarchy of our social system. In forests, the same thing, like the below ground world is like a perfect example of that. You know, these bacteria, the fungi, the archaea, they're the ones that are cycling the carbon, decomposing things, cycling nitrogen, you know, filtering water, building soil, soil structure. And the yet- The caregivers of the forest. They are. They're the fundamental foundation of the forest. They're the legacy of the forest that helps move it forward. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Suzanne Samard is a professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia. Her TED Talks have captivated millions, and now she's released her book, Finding the Mother Tree. You like to say that you grew up, you grew up in British Columbia. You like to say you grew up in a province of old growth forests. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder as you speak that and you feel in your body that presence, that old growth forest as you were a child growing up in it, what did that mean? I mean how, how did you experience it then? Well, it was. Oh, I knew. Um, of course, we would go away from the old growth forest and then I would think, oh, I've got to get back um, because it was it's in my blood and bones and DNA. You know, my ancestors for many generations lived in these inland rainforests um, and you know, it just, it's just the way we were. And so I guess when I went away, so um, into the drier areas, for example, where there's grasslands, um, I thought they were beautiful too, but I always wanted to get back and felt so much 
at home when I was among the big old trees. And there is this moment you describe with your grandfather when you had this glimpse of what you say called a palette of roots and soil, and you saw that this was the foundation of the forest. And um, it seems to me that in some ways you ended up pursuing that glimpse in what you did later as a scientist. Yeah, you know, who I was, how I grew up, you know, being among the trees. And of course, as a child, spending a lot of time on the forest floor, um, because that's where you are, you're small, and building forts with my brother and sister and rafts that we would take on the lake. And, you know, it it was just, it was these, the roots and the connection in the forest was just one of us, right? We just, we just knew it that way. And then, of course, when I I did become a scientist, and I, uh, a forest scientist, eventually, and I embarked on, well, I started out with an undergraduate degree thinking I wanted to be just a forester because I loved, you know, I loved forestry. My grandfather was a horse logger and yeah. uh, and I loved what he did and I wanted to be part of that. But what I entered into was a much different uh worldview and way of treating the forest, which was really not about caring for the forest. It was more about exploiting the forest. Right. It's so interesting, too, because one of the things that you started to really pay attention to and illuminate uh, are the fungi uh, and mycorrhiza, mm-hmm. um, which probably is, is, is this what you saw with your grandfather there when you were young? It's what you were looking at without having a name for I mean, yeah, I was aware of of mushrooms in the forest. Mushrooms, yeah. <laughs> Especially when, yeah. you know, everybody, like, we see these and they're so magical and, and mystical and yeah. uh, and colorful. And, you know, it's a special part of the forest. But I didn't really understand when, as a child, you know, what they did in the forest. I just knew they were, you know, a part of the forest, an integral yeah. part of the forest. And it's fascinating, um, as I also learned from you, that this, this kind of Darwinian approach to forest management only focused on fungi that are pathogens, and that is a reality. But not what you saw is this this fungus root that that under a single footstep there can be hundreds of kilometers of yeah. how do you say mycelium? Mycelium. Mycelium. Yeah. It was so much more complex again than the thing growing above ground that our eyes could perceive. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. Like we, you know, foresters were very much focused on the pathogens because they kill trees. And yeah. there was huge efforts to get them, you know, to to reduce that mortality due to pathogens and, and these kind of crazy forest practices where, you know, where if there was this one pathogen, Armillaria ostoyoi, the practice was to pull the stumps out of the soil, like literally take these huge machines and rip these stumps out of the soil so the roots were exposed, killing the pathogens, which just is a really good example of the extent, you know, that that we would go to in order to to uh, create these, you know, so-called productive environments for trees to grow and be for stands to be fully what we call fully stocked with fast-growing mm-hmm. crop trees. You you also came to so so there's this web of vitality that we that we hadn't been able to understand and. You also, you use the language of conversation, of the trees talking to each other. And I I loved, there's a moment in the book, Finding the Mother Tree, where you you tell the story of the first time, and you're, you're using this language, but I want you to open this up for us, like you first, that you first listened to a fir tree, that you heard it 
with a Geiger counter. So what were you hearing? Yeah, so we'd done this experiment where we grew these 80 triplicates of birch, fir, Mm -hmm. and cedar. And, you know, just building on the story that birch was considered and still is a competitor in forests, a weed, um, even though it's a natural part of succession, you know, after disturbances, birch and aspen and cottonwoods, they come back, right? And they, they're like the healing process of, of a disturbed forest. Um, but mm-hmm. foresters viewed them as unnecessary competitors and had launched an all war on trying to get rid of these these deciduous trees. And that war is still going on to this very day, creating policies and practices that support that. And what I wanted to know, you know, was, you know, whether they really were competitors with Douglas fir and cedar, um, or if they had, had a more sophisticated relationship. So I did, you know, this preliminary work and I discovered, you know, I knew that Douglas fir and paper birch shared these mycorrhizal fungi, these species in common, and actually uh, potentially linked them together. And I was building on earlier research done in the UK with, you know, in the laboratory where David Reed and his colleagues had found that pines grown in little clear plastic root boxes in the lab that when they were connected, they could be connected by a mycorrhizal fungus. And that yeah. when they he labeled one seedling with radioactive CO2, he could trace it going to another one. So I kind of used that same approach. I thought, does this happen in real forests? And so, yeah, so I, I what I did is I, I, to find out if this network existed and whether or not, what was it doing? Like, were, was it facilitating any kind of relationship between paper birch and Douglas fir? And so I, I labeled paper birch with radioactive carbon dioxide. That means I put a plastic bag over the chute and I injected radioactive CO2 and I let the birch photosynthesize for a couple of hours, taking up that radioactive CO2. Just a couple of hours. Just a couple of That's hours. That's all it took. Yeah. That's all it yeah. took. Um, yeah. And then with the Douglas fir, I labeled it with a different isotope, a stable isotope that doesn't decay over time. It's not radioactive. So then I could distinguish, you know, if these carbon molecules were going back and forth between these two species. And so I did, you know, I labeled it for two hours as well, put a plastic bag over Douglas for injected the C13 CO2, and then came back six days later with my Geiger counter. And the first thing was, you know, did the labeling work? Was I able to label the paper birch with the radioactivity? So I held the Geiger counter up to it. And sure enough, it just went wild. You know, it was crackling like crazy. It had worked, right? I had totally made this paper birch hot. And so then I went over to the Douglas fir and I held the, the Geiger counter up to it. And there was a faint crackle. And that's when I knew. I knew that they were sharing carbon, which was mind blowing. Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the groundbreaking forest ecologist Suzanne Samard. All the way through the book, and and this is the discipline of science, right? You are you you raise a question and then you go you pursue it, right? Mm-hmm. And so your question here was, you know, how were paper Birch and Douglas for communicating, and it turns out they were conversing not only in the language of carbon, 
So that the language in which they were conversing, as you found, is in carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus and water mm-hmm. and defense signals and chemicals and hormones. Um, in, yeah, in 1997, you published this Nature article, which, well, first of all, it was rejected. Mm-hmm. And you went back and, and rewrote it, and I get the feeling that you did not expect that they would put it on the cover. <laughs> they put it on the cover, correct? Or They they did, yes. And, and that it would catapult you into visibility. Um, and not surprisingly, because you were... You're saying things people hadn't said before in this mm-hmm. way. You and you were a woman mm-hmm. in a male-dominated field and fields, probably forestry as well as um, science. And you, there'd been a lot of resistance, but you published this work. And did you use the language of wood wide web, or did someone else, or did nature say that? That was nature. The, the, nature they, said, yeah, okay. they put that on the the front cover. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, of, with a, with a picture of these diverse um, forests with you know all these different tree species. Yeah, do you like that little shorthand? I, I do. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the wood part is quite utilitarian, but it's catchy, and it's become almost like a meme now. And yes, which has been highly effective in helping people think about the forest in a different way. And it was also at the same time that we, you know, people had just discovered the World Wide Web, right? Yes, 1992, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, yeah. It, yeah, it was. It was actually. It was great. Yeah. So what. What they were picking up on was this imagery of of the forest having nodes and links, right? Like the internet. And that's in there. I also feel like what you are describing is something more alive, <laughs> um, more well, it was more biological than the internet, right? I mean, you were you mm-hmm. were talking about these nodes that are hub trees that you call mother trees and that the forest is not just wired, but wired for wisdom and care. Yeah. And actually, you know, when, when the nature paper was published, um, we didn't know what the pattern of the network looked like below ground. Um, That actually, that work came a little, quite a bit later. And I'll explain why, you know, I, I eventually in, in the, about 10 years later, I was getting really, worn down by the reviews of my work and and also just the state of of the science like we were scientists were just kind of wringing their hands over whether this network existed because you can't see it very well with your own eyes it's below ground these fungal mycelium are some of them are invisible to the eye and then there was just a lot of distrust about this communication going on or this collaboration because we were so heavily steeped in the idea that trees only compete and so you know there was a great hand-wringing over whether or not this actually helped the plants or helped the fungi and so Mm -hmm. I, I, I got a grad student Kevin Byler and we decided to map what that network looked like what emerged out of that mapping, these hubs and nodes and links and mother trees, which has, you know, it's got a story unto itself. Well, say some more, say some more. Yeah, so when we did this, so I felt like we've got to move this field forward or it's going to die. Um, it's going to get mired in having to prove the same things over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so 
I picked a forest that is a Douglas fir forest, an interior Douglas fir forest in British Columbia. These are drier forests that are what we call uneven aged in forestry language. That means that you have big old trees, but you have lots of young trees too. They grow up underneath the shade and a canopy of the old trees. It's kind of a self-regenerating forest. And so it's got multiple ages. Um, and so just to give context, so, mm-hmm. so in this forest, we estimated about 100 species of fungi in these little patches of forest that were mycorrhizal fungi. We looked at two sister species of one fungal species, rhizopogon. So we looked at a tiny, tiny fraction. And what we found was that every tree was connected to every other tree by these two sister species of this one species alone. Mm. Can you Mm. imagine if we'd mapped all 100? It would have been like incredible. (laughs) Right, Um, right. So so every tree is linked to every other tree. All the little trees, the the seedlings, the saplings are all linked into the networks that these old trees had established through their lifetime. And that these the biggest, oldest trees were the hubs of the network. They were the nuclei. They were what everything else was linked into. And they were linked to each other, these other smaller nodes as well. But the biggest linkers were, were these big old trees. Mm. And that's, that's kind of, it makes sense because the big old trees have big root systems. They've got many points of contact. And they have great big photosynthetic crowns that basically transmit energy into the ground that feeds the network. And so, you know, the interpretation interpretation was that these seedlings, the seedlings, the young regeneration had had regenerated within the network of the old trees. So basically, they germinated their little, you know, root systems developed linked into the network of the old trees within a month or two. And they started to get subsidies directly from the old trees, carbon and nitrogen and water, um, which we found out later. And they also benefited from just this vast mycelium that was just like like an iceberg right (laughs) it was it was huge and so they were immediately had a head start and could survive in this you know otherwise fairly dark forest where you know photosynthetic rates were really really low with their tiny little needles there's no way they could have survived without these subsidies right well and it's so interesting too because you were you were becoming a mother yourself in these years of your research. Yes. Um, I mean, you. let's be clear, you had to be so rigorous in your science, right, to be yeah. taken seriously. So you don't make these, you don't use these metaphors lightly or no, carelessly. Not at all. Um, and at the same time, you know, some of the qualities that you describe, some of the things that these mother trees do absolutely mirror the intelligence that human beings possess in mothering, parenting, and eldering, right? Passing Mm -hmm. wisdom on, sending warning signals, aiding others through sickness and distress, delivering nutrients. Yes, (laughs) yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, you've hit on exactly, you know, this kind of the struggle as a young scientist trying to, you know, establish their credibility in this very, you know, competitive and critical field. Um, And using the language that was only accepted at the time, if you didn't do that, you would be tossed to the dogs. Um, And I never even considered as a 30 year old or, you know, as I was developing my my creds of ever using language like mother trees or communication, I knew I would get tossed to the dogs. And um, and so it was with a great deal of um, trepidation to use this language. And and I am getting a lot of backlash over it, uh, especially since the book has been 
published. But oh, you are again now still? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, we're at the point where we have to, I feel, you know, I felt it was really important. We've got to move beyond this, right? We've yeah. got to embrace our place in nature as one with nature and that these trees they evolved long before we did. And these networks, for example, the the biological neural networks, which we found, um, they exist, you know, throughout nature. These patterns mm. exist throughout nature because they're efficient at moving stuff around, at communication, and they're resilient. And they're meant to help us be reproductive societies. Well, right. And as you say, we are of nature. We're not separate. And and also, it feels important to me that, um, and I don't see people pointing this out when they talk about your work, that, that the larger context, one of the larger contexts of this is that that there is within the field of evolutionary biology, our generation of science uh, and humanity is growing up and complicating and deepening that idea. Yes. but. Evolutionary biology in its many fields has been tempering and complicating and qualifying this idea that competition alone is the primary engine of evolution Mm -hmm. and that a human superpower is cooperation, that that leads to flourishing groups and the flourishing of our species. And the language you used, you know, the, the qualities of the forest of reciprocity and mutuality are also qualities of high-functioning humans. And yes. that's, that's a scientific observation in yes. our generation. Yes. Social systems and human social systems, you know, ecosystems, they're built fundamentally in similar ways. They're co- what scientists are now calling complex adaptive systems. Yeah. And that complexity has a pattern, and that pattern is highly evolved. And then how that system works, like through these networks, whether you're in a human social network or a, a fungal network in the forest, you know, it's evolved to basically to propagate species, you know, <laughs> which I don't disagree with, you know, with Darwinism in, in that way in that, you know, yes, species want to survive and reproduce, but the way they do it is much more sophisticated than we've thought about. And now, uh, or that we've developed our our science based on, but even now it's becoming more mainstream known that, you know, endosymbiosis has been highly important in, in collaboration. Yeah, and that was, I think, is that, was that a, the term that Lynn Margulis initially coined, yes. the endosymbiosis? So describe what that is. Yeah, so that's, um, you know, in the evolution of eukaryotic cells and prokaryotic cells as well, um, what we've discovered now, or or scientists have discovered, is that it really, that evolution involved in the engulfing of, you know, one organism of another. And that, that led to the development mm-hmm. of organelles like mitochondria. Now we know that it's not just the evolution of a species by itself. And so that endosymbiosis means it's a symbiosis. They live together. That's what symbiosis means. Right, Endo right. means like the engulfing and, you know, creating the eukaryotic cell with a nucleus and and ribosomes and, and all the other organelles that are really an evolution of... Of, of this collaboration, this cooperation. And even in the human genome, as we've discovered that, that we are full of, you know, DNA that is from other organisms, viruses right, and bacteria. Right, and right. So now yeah. it's now it's it's actually accepted uh, that this has been fundamental to evolution, but it did take a long time. And I think Lynn Margulis took a lot of heat for her ideas. She did, like you. She was ridiculed for a long time. I, I um, you know, it seems to me that just as we're speaking, this it seems to me, you know, with the kind of catchphrase like the the um, 
the soundbite of Darwinianism has been survival of the fittest. But what you have been looking at in the forest and what I feel like more of our attention, including scientific attention, is going towards now is what is the nature of vitality and flourishing not mere survival. Yeah, that's such a great point. You know, um, a fit organism puts on biomass, right? They grow, they, they flourish. They don't just mm-hmm. merely survive. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because when we manage ecosystems, when I look at forestry practices or agriculture practices or, you know, fishing, or it's like we manage them just to survive. We don't manage them to flourish. We push them to the brink of collapse, right? Take as much as we possibly can. And I think, yeah, I think we need to step away and look at how all interrelated this science is with this management and what shape we're in right now, the trajectory that we're on. These things are all connected together. After a short break, more with Suzanne Simard. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the forest ecologist Suzanne Samard. Her research has shown that a forest is a single living organism, and this is transforming our scientific and cultural understanding of trees. She was an inspiration for the scientist at the center of Richard Power's celebrated novel, The Overstory. But a conversation with her also sheds light on the vitality of the living system that is a human family or society. Her book is called Finding the Mother Tree. One of the things you saw, have seen in the forest, is that the chemicals that are being transmitted are identical to our neurotransmitters, that these processes that we've only recently been able to map in the human brain it's, it sounds like it's the same process, or it's a it's a kindred process to that. It, it, they have similarities. It is is uh, hard to ignore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, when I did my studies with my students, we were we were looking at carbon and nitrogen and water and how it's moving between plants, and then looking at the stoichiometry of of these chemicals, these elements moving together. And I realized, you know, the stoichiometry was was the same as is glutamate, you know, of carbon and nitrogen. And I'm just like, oh, you know, <laughs> it's glutamate that's moving through these. Or is it? And and, and what and say what glutamate is? Glutamate is is an amino acid. It's got carbon mm-hmm. and nitrogen in it. Um, and and it happens to also be one of our neurotransmitters. Yeah, so um, it's essential in our bodies as well. Yes, yeah. and so I. 
you know how as scientists they have their their scales that they work at i do cross scales but i don't really cross into the scale of what the molecules are um i go from the forest down to these to networks but i i, I have to rely on other scientists to do that more molecular okay. detailed biochemical work and so other people had discovered that glutamate was one of the main amino mm -hmm. acids that actually moves through networks yeah it's fascinating and and Something that you also, along the way, realized is that this way of seeing and redefining, you know, what feels like discovery to us um, and is being discovered and kind of named in terms of scientific and scientific vocabulary, is actually, in some ways, you could say that it's, it's modern science joining, meeting intelligence that has been there in traditional societies, in aboriginal societies. Mm -hmm. So there have been humans who understood, didn't have this particular language. But that's also a conversation you've been having kind of around the edges of your, of your own research. Is that mm -hmm. correct? It is. You know, I've had such great fortune to, you know, in the last decade to to work with Aboriginal scientists and, and Aboriginal people. I got a, a postdoc, Dr. Teresa Ryan, who is a, a salmon fishery scientist. And I've been struggling so much in this Western science sphere with my colleagues and publishing my work and, and, and fighting, you know, to get the interpretations accepted, you know, of, of collaboration and wholeness of the ecosystems. And I just started talking to her and she's like, well, our worldview is that we are part of these ecosystems that we are all connected together we can't be separated from each other and that yeah collaboration is is all part of it you know that that the, the world is an entwined place and she even you know showed me this oral history and writings by a, a man Subie Bruce Miller of the Snohomish Nation and he had written about these fungal networks in the soil and, and that was before these discoveries and, and how his people had known about these networks and how it kept the forest strong for millennia. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, we've been we're so we've been so narrowly focused on on reductionist science, pulling things apart and then trying to understand them, that we lost our way to, to actually see these as whole systems. And so I was I felt so suddenly accepted you know I felt like mm -hmm. I, I belong again you know mm -hmm. I, I, I don't th I don't feel like I'm gonna get you know my science is going to be now I need to get on track with really moving it forward and not fighting you know fighting the criticism I need to just move forward and uh, yeah that was such an, a blessing for me it's just opened mm -hmm. up my whole world and now you know I'm working a lot with Aboriginal people and just opening up, you know, how do we work together? And mm -hmm. and viewing, you know, Western science is really just the little sister to Aboriginal science, which has been going on for millennia. <laughs> right. For so much longer. Yeah. There was someplace also you've been talking about some of your newer work in the near the end of the book about um, understanding the connection between fish and rivers mm -hmm. and inland forests, and that that's also a connection that has long been made in these other bodies of intelligence and, and practice. Yeah, so I'm I'm working with the Hyaltsik Nation, which is in the mid coast region of British Columbia, and um, the Hyaltsik have a, a large, large territory. They're they're actually a combination of many nations. Um, 
but th- that's another story. But um, so we work with the Hyaltsuk Nation in going to a number of watersheds that had different salmon runs. And this is a long, long story. But basically what we, we were after is we wanted to understand the role of salmon in forest productivity and building on work of the Aboriginal people who knew about these connections between salmon trees and themselves, um, and also some earlier Western science that had, you know, disco- made discoveries that that salmon nitrogen was inside of trees and plants and insects. And so we wanted to know what was so the amazing. pathway. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it is absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah. You know, so we were embarking on what is the pathway? How does it? How does the salmon get in, into these trees? And so oh. that's yeah, we've been unraveling that story. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Something that that you that you often have been fascinated and amazed by, uh, and is also the the self healing properties mm-hmm. of the forest, and that these are regenerative systems. In your book, you really do also. You know, like the best books, I think, you're telling multiple stories mm-hmm. together. And so the story of the science unfolding, the understanding unfolding, and also what you were living through as a human being. Mm-hmm. And you you did have cancer. Mm-hmm. And the way I think of this is not anthropomorphizing, but actually applying, you know, letting different kinds of intelligence be in a reciprocal relationship, right? And mm-hmm. so... So you experienced, you know, somewhere you said about yourself, you started to understand that we are made for recovery mm-hmm. and that there were echoes there within the regenerative system that is a forest that you were studying and, mm-hmm. and living in. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, that was an incredible learning moment for me, um, you know, in a, in a very personal and visceral way. I, I mean, I was, you know, I, I got breast cancer. It wasn't great. It had spread to my lymph nodes. I, I was, um, you know, I was facing death. And I had to really embrace all that I could to survive. My kids were 10 and 12 at the time, or 12 and 14. And I needed to be there for them. And I I was worried that I might not be and I had to do anything I could. And I learned, you know, I actually learned from my doctors, I learned from my friends, all the other women going through chemo, my family, and we all, you know, we came together as a system, as a system, really, as, as a group, that, you know, we were helping each other. Just as a, an example, my I, I call it my BFS, my breastless friends forever. We all lost our breasts. <laughs> okay. And, uh, yeah. you know, we all went through chemo together. We all mm. were, it was really, really hard. And the way we supported each other by, you know, just being there always and still today, ten, you know, almost 10 years later, these are some of my best friends and we, we're constantly in contact. And it's like the network, right? It's a reinforcing, resilient network. It, it's regenerative. It helps you be happy and healthy. Um, and, you know, in the forest, that's how forests regenerate, as we talked about, how seedlings establish within the network of this collaborative system. You know, the old trees are nurturing them and bringing them up. And this is exactly how our own social systems work and what keeps us healthy and alive and productive and, and happy, too. I'm 
Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with the groundbreaking forest ecologist, Suzanne Simard. with the language of ecosystem and just, you know, it's about that word is about a hundred years old in our vocabulary and strangely I think it takes about a century for some really tectonic shift in understanding to start to penetrate, you know, I mean just Mm -hmm. like Einstein completely reframed the nature of time but we're still living in this clockwork world because (laughs) we haven't caught up yet And, um, and it does feel to me like like ecosystem it is a total reframing, and we're just catching up in all these ways we've been talking about, learning about the ecosystem and our bodies. And as you said, with new cutting-edge scientific tools, seeing mm-hmm. the ecosystem in something like a forest. I just want to read something you wrote, um, just this incredible passage um, from your book. We can think of an ecosystem of wolves, caribou, trees, and fungi creating biodiversity, just as an orchestra of woodwind, brass, percussion, and stream musicians assemble into a symphony. Or our brains, composed of neurons, axons, and neurotransmitters, produce thought and compassion. Or the way brothers and sisters join to overcome a trauma like illness or death, the whole greater than the sum of the parts. I kept thinking when I was reading you about a conversation I was in a few years ago with a bunch of people who were in their 20s. And there was a breakout group, and the title of it was Communal Scaling. Communal scaling would be about vulnerabilities and resilience getting interconnected. It would mean that everything wouldn't just get bigger and bigger. There would be things that got smaller. There would be things that died. And their learnings would be incorporated into the ongoing vitality. In some ways, I look back at that and I think about the intelligence and the vision in that conversation was is very much reflected in what you've learned about how forest ecosystems mm-hmm. work. Yeah. I mean, forests are really dynamic places, just, just like our own societies. And, and it mm-hmm. does involve death. It involves um pulling back. It involves learning or redirecting your resources sometimes to learn something new. So it's not always about growth. You're, right. You know, it's not always about becoming bigger and better and in a traditional or a visible way that, you know, you might measure as wealth, for example, or power. You know, the most powerful parts of our social systems can be, you know, the, the elder that has aged and is guiding younger people or guiding their culture and and yet they can be almost invisible in the hierarchy of our social system mm-hmm. um in forests the same thing like these the the below ground world is like a perfect example of that we don't see it we don't necessarily unless you're looking below ground and here it's doing all the fundamental work right you know these mm-hmm. bacteria mm-hmm. the fungi right. the archaea right. they're the ones that are cycling the carbon decomposing things cycling nitrogen you know, filtering water, building soil, soil structure. And the yes, caregivers of the forest. They are. They're the fundamental yeah. foundation of the forest. They're the legacy mm. of the forest that helps move mm. it forward. Mm. There's this very quiet, there are these quiet sentences that I, I just want to, you know, put back from you again. There is a necessary wisdom in the give and take of nature. It's quiet agreements 
and search for balance. There is an extraordinary generosity. Yeah. You know, species, they don't live in isolation. It is a world of give and take. It is a a relationship of silent agreements between species. We all need each other to create these healthy systems that, you know, it Yeah, I can't emphasize that enough that the community, you know, the ecosystem is a complex place and it's about working together. It's not just about the parts. They're more than the sum of the parts. Yeah. And there's a way that that just lands, at least in some of us, as as common sense, Mm -hmm. which is also fascinating because given how much (laughs) rigorous work you had to do to be able to formulate those ideas. Yeah. um, inside the field. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll look back on this period and go, what were we thinking? Yeah. (laughs) But it's pervasive, right? Like like Mm -hmm. agriculture, look at agriculture. It's going through transformations away from industrial, high input agriculture to more regenerative agriculture. And, And some systems are almost irretrievable now that we've hammered them so hard with this kind of thinking. Like, for example, the crash of our salmon populations. Well, we need to really regenerate these systems so that and change our thinking so that they can be healthy again. Yeah. I want to ask a couple of less serious questions, just things I'm really curious about, but I suspect they might be related to this. So in the book, you have a lot of wonderful photographs, starting with photographs when you were a child with your family and all the way through. Something that you do in here, and I just think there must be a reason for it, is um you know, often when you have a picture, when we show photographs, we'll name the ages of children, right? So here's the first one in the book, I think. It's it's your siblings and your mother, and you say, Kelly, three, Robin, seven, and mom, Ellen, June, 29, I'm five. And then all the way through the book, you know, you, you name the, the ages of all the adults, right? So mm-hmm. it's not just the five-year-old, it's the 89-year-old. Mm-hmm. And there's something, it just, it made me sit up and think about the generations in a different way. And, you know, anyway, is there a reason that you did that? Well, I I wanted to tell the story of how my life was so essential to the questions I asked in my science. And I wanted to tell that story, you know, in a, in a way that people could understand and follow, make it simple. And so you could trace what was happening. I wanted people to realize that, that this scientific endeavor was really a, a life lived. And mm-hmm. it wasn't just my life. It was generations that came before me and the generations that come after me were all linked together. And I, I felt that that might help um, people to, you know, see that line. If you want to call it a line, it's not really a line. It's a, it's kind of a cycle. But yeah, yeah. I felt like it was a good touch point, a touchstone for people to really grasp the development of the story. Mm-hmm. A word that you use a lot in your writing and when you're talking about the work you're doing is um, humus. You do, you say it that way, right? Yes. Um, at some point in the last couple of years, I think it was after I read Andrea Wolf's book, uh, The Invention of Nature, about Alexander von Humboldt. I don't know if you read that, but... Uh, but it's it's really about the trajectory of, you know, going from natural philosophy where science was saw itself as it was multidisciplinary and connected to all kinds of other disciplines like that that we don't consider to be science now. And anyway, that language of humus and I started thinking how interesting it was that the root of humus and human mm-hmm. and also humor <laughs> 
how those three words yeah. are so. And there was there's this line of Henry David Thoreau and Walden: um, "Shall I not have intelligence with the earth? Am I not partly leaves and vegetable mold? Which is, I guess, a mm-hmm. way to talk about humus. Myself. Um, I don't know. I've never had anybody to talk to about that with. But <laughs> no, I mean that that's really brilliant of you. Those, I mean, those root words are, you know, in, are there, it's connected together. The the humus is the foundation of the forest. It's it's where the decay happens. It where it's where the the nutrients are. It's like it's where most of the carbon in the soil is. It's it's an absolutely fundamental part of the being of the forest. And humor, for example, is that is our is also our you know, and what makes us fundamentally happy and interesting people and mm. gives us, you know, makes us relax and, and enjoy our lives, happiness, um, to be human. <laughs> and and I, I love that you've made that linkage together. That That is brilliant. I love it. Well. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. I'm happy to discuss it with someone. Um, I mean, if I ask you, through this life, um, this professional life, but also a, a human life that you've spent, um, you know, in the forest, with the forest, uh, not just with the forest, but that as your passionate focus. Um, how would you talk about how that has shaped and evolved and maybe right now, today, continues to evolve your understanding of what it means to be human? Yeah, you know, I this... <laughs> I think that we all kind of struggle with that, right? That's kind of our life's work is to understand what is it to be human? What is the meaning of my life? And we go through these changes, these dramatic changes at different points in our life. And I, I think as a, as a child, you know, I didn't really think about it that much other than that I just loved. <laughs> I just loved this place that was my, my home, which was the forest. Mm. You know, and then I I went through all of these incredible journeys of, and not always fun, right? Like a lot of difficulty, a lot of um, frustration, and second guessing myself, and and yet out of it, I've grown into a more whole person myself. And maybe I'm back to where I was as a kid, right? Like to enjoy, just be happy with this whole life that I have. And you know, you. You have such a good cheer, I would say, both in spite of and because of what you see. The intelligence of nature, the innate intelligence we have the capacity to possess. Um, You know, you've said the forest is wired for wisdom, which is such Mm -hmm. an intriguing idea. I mean, do you, and I know, I mean, there you are in British Columbia, and and we're speaking speaking in a time in which... um, yeah, f- fires and the the consequences of living the way we've been living are are really coming home, mm-hmm. are intensifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like you hold on to all the complexity. You also hold on to this capacity for regeneration and self healing that you've seen, and mm-hmm. and this you know you said forests are wired for wisdom, and I I, I feel like you also think we are, mm-hmm. although it's not necessarily the destination. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, you know, um, I've learned through my work and studying how systems work that they are regenerative systems. You know, they're built that way. Um, they've evolved that way. Um, you know, that, that the old help the young, that the large helps the small, and it, and it's reciprocal. And that this network, this system will grow, and, and out of it emerges incredible stuff, like the ability to sequester carbon in our ecosystems, for example. Um, the productivity of a beautiful cathedral forest, the 
sense of wonder and health and vitality you get that we get when we interact with that incredible place. You know, even in our own our own societies, look at what we've achieved and what look at the joy we've developed. Like listening to the symphony, um, watching our children grow. Like there's, it's just full of joy, and we're we're built for that. And and that's what gives me incredible hope. And honestly. Hope is the only way to go, right? And, and it's also that hope is based on understanding. It's an understanding that that our ecosystems are meant to heal themselves. And yes, there are tipping points. And yes, we do. If we don't make changes, they can collapse, but they can also go the other direction. The system will respond if we make those choices, and it will rebuild and 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 reorganize, self-organize again in a way that is going to be healthy for maybe even the human population, the human society, right? I think it's all there. We have all the tools. We have all the fundamental building blocks. We just need to make the right, make good decisions. We have to re-self-organize as well. We do. <laughs> we, we have to get we regenerative do. too. We do have to re-self-organize, but we're doing it. We see it like there's hope everywhere. Suzanne Simard is professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia. You can connect with her ongoing work at mothertreeproject.org. Her book is called Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Check, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Patrick Otuma, Ben Cott, Gautam Shrikashin, Lily Benowitz, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, and Matt Martinez. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.